All right, thank you guys. Let's take our Bibles this morning and let's uh, open them to, uh, I want you to go first to Acts chapter 12 and then just uh, hold your place there. Then we're going to look over it uh, across the page to Acts chapter 13 and then uh, we will conclude in uh, Acts chapter 15 as well. So I'm going to have you jump around a little bit uh, this morning. Let me join in uh, welcoming you and uh, just holding in front of you again our gathering this evening at 6 o'clock for a hymn sing and uh, communion at 6 o'clock. We would love for you to be a part of that, Uh, whether you're here in person now or online, come and join us at Ford Chapel uh, this evening at 6 o'clock. And, uh, you know, we as a people of God, uh, we memorialize our faith, not just in meals like Passover, communion, not just in monuments like stones stacked up in a river, but we very much memorialize our faith in the songs that we sing. And uh, they are to be a unique and distinctive kind of song, even when God's people were in Babylon. It was, uh, we have accounts of the oppressors saying to God's people, sing to us the songs of Zion. They recognize that these people in their distinctive faith have a very unique and distinctive kind of music, and that's a part of what we're celebrating tonight. So we hope that you will be here and be a part of that at 6 o'clock, and uh, we'll have you out by 7, I assure you, all right? Let's look at Acts chapter 12. It's a bit of a biographical message this morning. And as you're opening your Bibles there, I would say to you, this, uh, there's a character I was introduced to years ago, uh, a gentleman by the name of Arthur Gordon. And I came to know Arthur Gordon through the writings of an Episcopalian priest by the name of John Claypool. And what struck me about Arthur Gordon was his, his background, his pedigree. He really did not have a pedigree that would lend itself to the life they would be privy to. He grew up in Savannah, Georgia, uh, did well academically in school, won a full scholarship to Yale University. And when he was there competing with the keenest of minds and intellects, uh, he excelled uh, to the point that he became one of 32 Rhodes Scholars, went to Oxford and studied uh, for two years his discipline of choice, which was English literature. He even had opportunity to spend an afternoon with Rudyard Kipling, the great triumphalist, before Kipling would, would die. Well, after, after finishing Oxford, he returned to the States. And uh, the winds of war were upon our nation. World War II was getting started. And like most young men his age, he volunteered for military service, spent the next five years fighting in World War II. And after the war, he got back together with some of his colleagues, some of his uh, Yale alum, and they had always talked about, and they had kind of hashed this out in the pubs of New Haven, that someday what they would love to do is to have a kind of uh, avant-garde uh, literary journal uh, to bring recognition to young poets and, and writers. And so they decided to do this. They were going to pursue it and put it together. And Arthur Gordon was made the first editor-in-chief. Uh, it received critical acclaim, peer review acclaim, this academic um, literary journal. But the problem was, was that Arthur Gordon was a better writer than he was a businessman. And soon this journal found itself in dire financial straits. And part of the problem was, the tragedy was, 
was that Arthur Gordon had signed his name to many of these personal notes to, to prop it up financially. Well, it, it went bankrupt. They were, they were not able to get their money out of it. And, and, and to throw uh, worse on top of bad, his, his high school sweetheart back in Savannah, Georgia, that had been waiting for him all of these years, she finally got tired of Arthur not ever pulling the trigger and getting married. So she broke up with him and married another man. So, so here is a young man that, that had only known success, that had only known acclaim and applause in his life, and, and now he was at rock bottom. Now, to be sure, failure is a rite of passage for every person. In life, it is. Uh, our character is forged through the hardships and the failures and the tragedies of life. But for someone that has only known success in life, that has only known applause and acclaim for everything they did in life, that they have done in life, for them to have to deal with failure can be especially difficult. And this was the first time in Arthur's, Arthur Gordon's life that he had ever faced public failure. And he didn't handle it well. He became despondent. He became depressed. He became withdrawn. And he became suicidal. He had never faced anything like this in his life. He wouldn't even get up, wouldn't shave, wouldn't open the windows in his home. He was at absolute rock bottom. His family in Georgia grew concerned. They flew to New York to check on him. They were shocked when they saw him in his disheveled condition. They happened to know an elderly therapist there in Manhattan uh, who happened to be a family friend, and they called upon him and asked if he would be willing to see their son, Arthur. He agreed, and Arthur made his way in an October afternoon. It was gloomy and rainy. Interestingly, it reflected the attitude that he had about this. But something very interesting happened when he, received, when he, when he arrived at that, at that therapy session with this elderly man. He said, it became kind of my personal confession. And he said, I felt this freedom as I never had, to, had before to pour out my feelings, to be real, to be transparent, to pour out my feelings and my emotions, all of my failures, all the things that I wish I had not done, all the things I wish I had done but didn't do. I just poured it out. And in his wisdom, this elderly therapist said, Arthur, he said, your story sounds very familiar to me to a number of individuals that have come through my office. And he said, I wonder if you'd be willing to listen to three recordings that I have. I have the permission of these former clients. And I wonder if you'd be willing to listen to them because I think you will find a similarity I think it will give your stories some context. Arthur Gordon didn't have anything to lose. He said, of course, I'd be willing to listen. So the therapist turned on the first tape, and it was a male voice. It was a man who had great remorse, a father who had overstepped the bounds of his parental authority to the, to the effect that it was still impacting his adult children to this very day. He was a man that was despondent, filled with regret. The next voice was a voice, was a voice of a woman, a female. She began talking about her divorce. 
And for all of these years, she had suppressed these feelings. She had always blamed everything upon upon her husband. But in introspection, she realized that, that she carried the burden of everything that went wrong. She was overwhelmed with guilt, with what she had done and what her life had evolved into. The third recording was of a businessman, another male voice, a business leader, a corporate leader a senior corporate leader. He was privy to information regarding a merger, a corporate merger, but he didn't adequately do his research, and it cost his company tens of millions of dollars. It was probably going to cost him his own job, and it was going to cost thousands of people their jobs. You can imagine the overwhelming guilt and shame this man must have felt. After that third recording, the therapist asked Arthur, he said, Arthur, do you, do you see a common thread in those stories? Arthur was bright. He said, of course. What I, what I sense in each one of them is in their own way, in their own fashion, they're saying, if only I could go back and act differently in my past. If only I could have done things differently. He said, that's right. But Arthur, I want you to know that those people today, I've been involved in their life, and they're at a far different place today than where they were on the tape that you were listening to. And the reason that they're in a different place is that I convinced them to change Two words in their script. To change the language that they use and the perspective that they have that drives these words. And to no longer think of life in terms of if only. But to think of it instead in terms of next time. If only. Next time. He said, Arthur, if only those two words that so many people use, he said, if only points to a segment of human experience that can never be undone. It is what it is. The results are what they are. No one is capable of going back and changing their if only. What is done is done. But what we're looking ahead to when we use the language of next time. Next time represents a segment of the human experience that is malleable. It is moldable. It is yet to be. It can be very much impacted. Next time can very much be impacted by, by your actions today. How you take those lessons learned from the past those if-only experiences, and how you apply them to next time. He told Arthur, I'm willing to take you on as a client, but you have to flip the script. If you're going to work with me and if I'm going to work with you, you have to commit yourself to no longer saying the words, 
if only. You're only allowed to say with me next time. Years later, Arthur Gordon would point to that season in his life as the most formidable period of growth that he learned more in practical life than what Yale and Oxford offered him combined. That's a significant event, I believe, for all of us. I believe it's a strategic moment in each one of our lives when we come to that place of experience, that place of understanding, that place of maturity, that place of faith, where our script in life is no longer defined by the words, if only. But we shift our minds and our language to the words, next time. Because the reality is, and none of us can escape this, Paul has said Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have our failures. We all have our ghosts. We all have our skeletons in the closet. We all have things that we can look back to, things I wish I had not done, or things that I could have done but I didn't do. Catastrophic failures. We all have that. But when I read the story of Arthur Gordon, I cannot help but think of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who in his grace and his mercies and in our right understanding of the messaging of the gospel, his mercy and his grace has afforded us the gift of next time. Next time. I could have gone a lot of different directions with this story, trying to find application of some biblical character. The characters that we could have pulled out of Scripture to apply to this story, they're they're too numerous today. I mean, I I could have pulled Moses out. I could have said, well, I'm going to talk about Moses and talk about moving from if only to next time. Could have done Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Jonah would have been a classic in talking about how to move from if only to next time. What about Paul? Paul certainly had enough regrets in his life. Uh, We could have used Paul to go from if only to next time. What about Peter? A little hothead, didn't he? Didn't always act as he should. You don't think Peter looked back on his life, his relationship with Christ, and and even as an early uh, leader in the early church, that, that Peter wasn't a man filled with regrets? But what I decided to do is to pick out a more obscure character, a character like John Mark, called John in Scripture, Mark in Scripture, John Mark. It's another name that is used. Because John Mark, to me, is a classic example of this grace of God that affords us the opportunity to move from the past, the lamenting past of if only, into the hopefulness of next time. Next time. See, John John Mark was a young man, as we see in chapter 12 of Acts. John Mark was a young man. He, He had a great beginning. He had a wonderful beginning. 
Everything was afforded John Mark. We know that John Mark, uh, his mother's house, his mother Mary, her home was a gathering place for the early church in, in Jerusalem. Well, notice here in verse 12, we even see that Peter, when Peter is released from prison, where does he go? He goes to Mary's house, John Mark's mother's house there in Jerusalem. And when he realized this, talking about Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, that is John Mark, who was called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. He had associations with, with the apostles. Peter makes mention of John Mark. Uh, Paul makes mention of John Mark. We know they had a great family. In Colossians 4, 4, I think it is, it talks about his relationship with, with Barnabas, who will make the first missionary journey with, with Paul. And so if the adage is true that, that life is the sum total of genetics, uh, environment, and choices, John Mark had the, ex, had the advantage of two of those. Come from great genes. He got a godly mother. Mary was a godly woman, a leader in the early church. And John Mark had good exposure, a good environment. I mean, can you imagine getting to hang out in your house with the Apostle Paul, Peter, Barnabas? All these people are hanging out at, at your house, that you're going to church with them on Sunday in Jerusalem? He had every advantage to grow, to be stable in the life of faith. But what we know about John Mark is he didn't have just a, a good beginning. There's, there's more to this story. Because he also had a terrible failing in his life. And what we have here is a shifting of, of the scene. Uh, in Acts 12, we, we see the setting is Jerusalem, but now the scene switches to, to Antioch. And notice it says here in, in verse 5, it says, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. We're talking about Barnabas and Paul. They had John Mark as their helper. But how things change in verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. The scene switches from Jerusalem to Antioch. And we know Antioch was a vital church in the, in the early church. In the early history of the church, Antioch played a central role. Antioch was the first place where the followers of Christ were referred to as Christians. Antioch, seemingly, according to Scripture, it was the first church, the, the church in Antioch was the first church that decided we need to send out missionaries. And they appointed Paul and Barnabas. But here's this young guy, John Mark. Man, he's excited about being a Christian, being a follower of Christ. I mean, when you're, when you're young, adventurous, there's excitement about this idea of I can go with John and uh, I can go with Barnabas, I can have with Paul and, and see the world and we're going to do this great work for the cause of Christ. Oh, you can just see that youthful zeal and enthusiasm, can't you? So excited. First place they go. They go to the island of Cyprus. They stay there a few days preaching. Then they decide to sail, sail south to the shores of Asia Minor. 
Pamphylia, and they've exchanged now. I think Paul gets sick. You know, they've come from the, uh, the cool sea breezes. Now they're in the heat of Pamphylia. So, so Paul and Barnabas, they decided, well, listen, let's, get, let's go to a cooler climate. Let's go to, uh, not to say these apostles weren't practical in their thinking. Let, let's cross the Taurus Mountains. Let's go into Galatia. There'll be a better climate there. Well, this is where John Mark punks out on them. He leaves them, goes back to Jerusalem. Now, the text doesn't say why. Our minds can run all kinds of imaginative directions. Maybe, maybe when he saw the mountains, he knew bandits were always in those, those, those mountain roadways, those mountain paths. Maybe he was scared. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he didn't feel good. Maybe he had... Maybe he had theological disagreements. I really don't put much weight on that when he's too young to have much theological thought. But we aren't really left with an explanation of why John Mark deserted them. We can only imagine, but John Mark would become the prototype. He would become Exhibit A, for the millions after him in church history that would disappear, that would walk away. Individuals who have been engaged in serving in ministry. I mean, how do you come to a place of serving in ministry with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas? And you just walk away? How do you even get to that point? It's a story told a million times. And without explanation. had the advantage, genetic advantage, being born into a, a godly home, had the advantage of, of, of friendship, Christian friendship, mentorship with, with Christian leaders, and yet just disappear without explanation? It's told a million times, nothing new. John Mark is just the first we have record of. It's happened a million times since then. Individuals who have the same privilege, the same exposure, just disappear, serving one day, serving the Lord faithfully, serving the church faithfully, disappear. You know, maybe John Mark, and this, this happens sometimes, maybe John Mark was too young of a man to be thrust into this leadership position. That's legitimate. We make that mistake sometimes, thrust people into leadership positions, they and, and they're not fully settled yet. We think they are, but we soon discover when they disappear and walk that they weren't really settled in who they are in Christ Jesus. There's other pulls in life, things that are alluring. Maybe a, maybe a young man that's, you know, he, 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 he's, he's, he's doing well in his vocation. He's on the upward rise in, in, his, in his career. And he starts seeing the lifestyle of, of his peers at work. And their life seems, uh, your life has been, the, the church has been the center of your life. But now at work, you see what your peers are talking about. And, and the things that they have seem, seem far more appealing. And so it becomes easier just to walk away, to begin pursuing what your peers have to pursue the life that they are living because the church that you're attending really doesn't prop up that kind of life. Maybe someone who was formerly a faithful steward 
But now when you've entered into that rat race of keeping up with the Joneses, what was once, what was once a faithful storehouse tithe from you now just gets lost in the wash of a, of a, of a house note for a bigger house. No. Scripture offers no explanation about John Mark, and we never have any explanation for those through all of our lives in the history of the church that we've ever seen just walk away. Now, they're going to have their excuse when you run into them. It's always going to be some dispersion cast upon the church. They're never going to tell you these kind of things. Paul always says there's going to be those among us, and it's true, there's always going to be those among us that like Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's always going to be in the life of the church those like Demas who Paul says forsook his calling because he loved the present world more. And so John Mark had a terrible failure. He walked away in the heat of battle. But there is more of John Mark's story to be told. Because you know if you know human nature, like you know yourself and like I know me, you know if you've done something like Mark, like John Mark, you know that at some point he was having those if-only regrets. That with the passage of time and in years, that uh, you know he had to have regrets. I can't believe I left those guys. I can't believe I just walked away without explanation. I can't believe I just walked away from those that, that poured into me, that had cared for me, that had been with me in seasons of life, who, who were investing in me. I can't believe if only I could go back. Well, John Mark, he had a terrible failing. But you know what? If you go to chapter 15, he had a redemptive ending. If we jump ahead those years later to the beginning of what Paul desired to be the second missionary journey, John Mark having abandoned them back at the very front end of that first missionary journey. So move ahead in time to a second missionary journey upon which Paul desires to embark. It says in verse 36 of chapter 15, and after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Bar Barnabas wanted to take John. Remember, that's his relative. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul was of the opinion that they should not take along with them this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now it turned into such a, into such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now at first blush, we all feel like this is absolutely terrible. We can't imagine that now there is a rift between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the son of encouragement, how could that possibly be in the body of Christ? But what we know now, don't we? It was a providential rift. That the kingdom of God actually benefited from these two, not duplicating steps together, but going in different directions. 
Or maybe your thought is this morning, my goodness, Paul is awfully hard. Oh, Paul isn't very redemptive. No, I think as a leader of a missionary journey, Paul realizes that when you're asking people to lead out and to assume leadership positions, these are not spots that you can afford to put out there for someone to find themselves. You've got to be locked and loaded on knowing what your life is about, who you are in Christ Jesus, so that you can stand up to the rigors and the storms of life that are going to come upon you. So Paul was of a mind as a leader saying, you know, these spots are just too valuable. I can't go there. He's not trying to freeze John Mark in time that John Mark can't be forgiven what he did because John Mark needs to be corrected. He's a young man that needs to be corrected. We can't just keep affirming bad behavior. The wrong road never becomes the right road. And so John Mark, he, he needed to be rebuked. He needed to be corrected. He needed to be disciplined. He need, needed to learn the life lesson that, that, bad fail, that bad behavior and failure is not rewarded. He needed to learn that. But of what value is that if there is no second chance? If there is no opportunity for forgiveness. What Paul was hoping for is contrition, repentance. It's a powerful thing. It's redemptive. And what is even, what is even more powerful than contrition and repentance is grace bestowed. Forgiveness that is extended and offered. The second chance of beginning Again, and Mark would have that experience. If you go to 2 Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul is sitting under Roman guard, facing the very real possibility of a death sentence as he's writing his last letter to his young understudy, Timothy. And near the closing section of that that letter, that final letter that we have record of that Paul would pen, Paul writes to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Take along Mark, John Mark. Take along John Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful for me in service. You see what happened? With the passing of time and years, John Mark was able to move from that place of regret. He was able to move from if only to next time. If only to next time. I'm given another opportunity. I won't fail in the heat of battle. I'll be ready. I'll prepare, be prepared. I'll take the lessons from what I've learned back here. And I will apply them to the future and the opportunities that God has for me. If you hear me saying anything this morning 
hear this. God is far more interested in your future than he is your past. God is far more interested in your future than he is your past. God is far more interested in what you are becoming, what his salvation is accomplishing in you. God is far more interested in what you are becoming than what you used to be. We already know from the psalm, it's Psalm 103. He's already cast our our sins into the depths of the ocean. They're as far removed as the east is from the west. Our sins are no more. In that same psalm, Psalm 103 and verse 10, it says that God does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our sins. God is far more interested in what you are becoming than what you used to be. So God doesn't take our failures, our shortcomings, our mistakes, our regrets. He doesn't use them as a source of condemnation, but education. Education. Learning. Applying. So that I can move from if only next time that's the greatest gift God has given us in Christ Jesus it is the gift of next time let's pray together our father how the enemy the divider Satan would seek to dwell in our minds with the preoccupations of if only, haunting us with our past failures, mistakes, shortcomings. But Father, I pray that you would enable us by the power of your Spirit, that you would enable us as your followers by the power of your Spirit to flip that script so that it will never be again in our hearts and minds but that our thoughts would forever be by the power and the work of the gospel, that our thoughts would forever be about next time. And that if only would forever be cast away from our remembrance. Father, in so doing, you enable us to be a people who celebrate, celebrate the life that is ours in Christ Jesus. In so doing, you enable us to be victors who dwell in this world as salt and light. So, Lord, we ask this day as your people for the victory of Christ Jesus that always is looking ahead by the power of the God who is making all things new to next time and what is in store and the opportunities you give to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand, and we will be dismissed this morning with this blessing from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.